blessed be thy name, O God. Thou remainest the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is with thee neither variableness nor shadow cast by turn. And it is to this unchangeableness of thine thou directest our attention for a sure hope, a hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. For it is written, I am Jehovah, I change not. Therefore are the sons of Jacob not consumed. And we pray that thou wouldst give us the spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of who and what thou art even in the knowledge of thy name as that is revealed in Christ Jesus, that our hope and confidence may be all together in thee. For blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And save us, we pray thee, from the position and condition of those whose hope is in man, and who make flesh their arm, and of whom thou sayest that they are cursed with a curse. O Lord, send thy light forth with thy truth, that we may be able to understand and to appreciate thy message unto us. For it has pleased thee in thy good providence to give unto us the word of truth as it is written, and we pray that thou thyself wouldst apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit to our heart, making us wise unto salvation. Bless thy word this evening, wherever it is proclaimed. Do thou acknowledge it as thine own one of the means appointed by thee for the quickening and the converting of sinners and for building up thine own in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Give us to understand more and more that while we have an inestimable privilege in having thy word, yet that we need more than this, that we need the spirit of the Lord to apply it to our heart, 
Thus making it quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the soul and spirit and the bones and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. May thy word thus come to us in power in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, and may it come to many this evening in such a way as that they shall be convinced in mind and conscience that this is indeed the word of the Lord, the word that abides forever. Thou knowest, blessed one, how much we need that thy power should accompany thy word, thus making it a word of life, a word of light, and a word of liberty unto many, giving them to know the truth, and as a consequence of knowing the truth, experiencing the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For it is written, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Bless unto us the many privileges that we receive at thy good hand. Grant that they may all work together for our good that we may be built up by them and through them in such a way as that we shall live more and more unto thee and not unto ourselves, that we shall live more and more a life of faith on the Son of God who loved his people and gave himself for them. Be pleased to remember the condition of thy Zion, thy church in the world. O blessed one, wilt thou not come and raise up Jacob, for he is very small? Wilt thou not raise a banner against the flood of the enemy that has come in upon us? We would look unto thee, persuaded that there is none other who can meet the strength and the wiles of the adversary, that there is none other who can turn the tide of ungodliness and unrighteousness, which is ready to engulf all things. We would remember that thou reignest, and that thou art mightier by far than the noise of many waters or the waves of the sea. Lord, wilt thou not give us to see thy power, thy gracious power being exercised on behalf of the cause which is thine own? 
Wilt thou not give us to see that thine hand is not shortened that it cannot save? Neither is thine ear heavy that it cannot hear. May we be found waiting upon thee, looking unto thee, beseeching of thee to remember mercy in the midst of the years to make known, even to make known what thou art and what thou canst do, that there is nothing too hard for thee to do, that thou art able to save to the uttermost all who come unto thee on the way of thine own appointment. Bless those who are denied our privileges, those who are laid up on beds of illness, those who are discouraged, those who are cast down. O Lord, be gracious to them, raising up the bow down and upholding those that fall, speaking a word in season, to, to those that are weary. We pray that thou wouldst in mercy use the means of grace, the means which thou hast appointed as channels of thy grace to the children of men, that thou wouldst use the public and the private means of thine appointing for the advancement and the establishment of thy cause in the earth. Bless all who have gone forth with thy word to the dark parts of the earth. All parts are dark. The only light in this world is the light that came into it, even Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And wherever he is, there is light. Wherever his fame has gone in the word of truth, he has promised to bless it and be a light to those who sit in darkness. Do thou thyself be with those then who endeavor to make thy light known where it has not been known before. Do thou bless their efforts and endeavors in such a way as that they shall be made to rejoice in thyself. Be with us now as we would further wait upon thee. Take away all our sins and receive us graciously. For Christ's sake, amen. We may now consider together as we shall be enabled words you will find in the chapter we read. The Epistle to the Hebrews, the fifth chapter, and we shall read again from verse 4. Hebrews chapter 5, reading from the fourth verse. And no man taketh his honor unto himself. But he that is called of God, as was Aaron, 
so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Especially the sixth verse. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> the institution of the priesthood. is uh, a forceful reminder of the fact that without shedding of blood there is no remission. A reminder of the fact that the channels of communication between God and man have been blocked by man's sin. Or in other words, a reminder of the fact that there is no direct approach for the sinner to the throne of God. It was always through the institution of the priesthood that men were permitted and enabled to draw near unto God. Now there are two things uh, essential and indispensable to the biblical institution of priesthood. Namely, a priest and a sacrifice. Where there is a sacrifice, there must be a priest to offer it. Where there is a priest, he must offer unto God gifts and sacrifices according to the divine appointment. Though many have seen the institution, the inception of the priesthood in uh, paradise itself, that is, in the Garden of Eden, before God drove the man out of it. And their way of reasoning was thus. <clears throat> we are distinctly told that God clothed the man and the woman with the skins of animals. This was the something God did for them. And that implies 
The death of the animals whose skins were used for the clothing of man, of the man and the woman. And it has been argued that these animals whose death is presupposed in, in the skins, that these animals were offered in sacrifice to God. Which would mean that God himself was the first priest. It would mean that those animals whose life was taken in order that man should be clothed were offered by God himself. For definitely the narrative does not permit us to think that it was a man who took the, the life of the animals with whose skins he himself was clothed. Now there is nothing impossible or improbable in that suggestion. We do not, of course, we do not press it because the scriptures are not explicit on that point. It is a deduction from what the scriptures tell us. But we do know that from the very beginning, sacrifice was an essential part of man's worship. And if we cannot press the point in relation to Adam, we can certainly press it when we come to consider Adam's sons. Cain and Abel. Why was the sacrifice of Abel more acceptable or acceptable to God and the sacrifice of Cain was not. One reason is that Cain's works were unrighteous. Abel's works were righteous. That is what the, what the Apostle John tells us. He asks the question, why did Cain slay Abel? Why slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. But where does the evil and the righteousness appear? And they may, of course, be predicated of um, the um, daily conversation of the two men. But what is wickedness? What is evil? Well, it is that which works in various ways. But it works particularly in men's approach unto God. 
This is where the evil of the heart makes itself specially apparent and obvious. In the way in which men endeavor to draw near unto God. And the evil of man's heart, evil expressing itself in the form of presumption, is nowhere more clearly seen than in this whether man endeavors to take God's way of approach or whether he tries to make a way of his own. Now we take it that the ordinance of sacrifice was known to both Abel and Cain. Abel followed the divine order. Cain didn't. He substituted his own thoughts for God's thoughts. He brought of the fruit of the earth. His sacrifice was a bloodless sacrifice. Abel brought of the, the firstling of the flock and came with that sacrifice. Sacrifice in which was included shedding of blood. And that principle is still in operation. And this is actually what makes the difference between man and man. This is what draws the, what draws the line of demarcation between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who are pleasing to God and those who are not pleasing to him. The righteous draw near on the basis of sacrifice. They draw their encouragement from bloodshed, the bloodshed of the God-man. The unrighteous, which is another name for the self-righteous, drawn in on the basis of what they produce themselves. The product of that earthly nature is what they present to God. What they do, what they have done, and what they intend to do. This is their encouragement. With this they draw near, and inevitably and invariably, Ah, we just it. This is wickedness in high places. It is spiritual wickedness in high places. To endeavor to draw near to the most holy one. On a way not appointed and not consecrated by himself. No, while it is sin that makes 
the office of the institution of the priesthood inevitable if men are to draw near to God at all. It is nevertheless true that while the institution is thus closely connected with sin, it is an honor under God's appointed way of worship. It is an honor to be called to the priesthood. It was a special honor, an honor that no man should dare take unto himself, an honor reserved for those of God's selection or election. The man who was made a priest was the man who was appointed by God. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that was called of God, as was Aaron. Now says the apostle here, even Christ did not glorify himself to be made an high priest. It wasn't Christ who honored himself by elevating himself to this office. He didn't take it without divine appointment. He didn't rush into the sanctuary to minister where he was not appointed. Even Christ did not glorify himself, did not honor himself in this way. But he was honored by the, nevertheless. Who honored him? He who said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. There may be ambiguity in the, work, in the way in which this is set down in English here. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him. Now that is not clear, at least on first reading. He glorified not himself, but he that said unto him. But when you consider the English grammar, it does make it clear. There was a long time, I can remember when I wasn't sure of the meaning of this. Did it mean that Christ glorified the Father, or that the Father glorified Christ? He glorified not himself. But he that said unto him. Now, even in English, it's perfectly clear, clear in, in the Greek. Uh, but even in English, it is clear if we just pay attention to the ground, the way it is said. If it meant that Christ glorified the Father, 
it would be written, he glorified not himself, but him. That is, Christ didn't glorify himself, but glorified him who called him. But that's not the way it is. But he, the new subject of the sentence, he glorified not himself, but he glorified him. That is, the Father glorified the Son, saying unto him, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And what comes before, and of course, and what comes after, puts this beyond any doubt. Christ didn't glorify himself or honor himself by intruding into this office without divine appointment. But he was divinely appointed. He was set apart to this office by him who said unto him, Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. Now notice in that statement the sonship and the priesthood of Christ are set in the closest relationship. He is glorified as priest by him who said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And that is taken as being synonymous, or always, syn almost synonymous with the next statement, which says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Whatever else this may mean, it is certainly true that there is drawn here, there is delineated here, the closest relationship between the sonship and the priesthood of Christ. Now, in what sense are we to take the sonship? Hmm. And definitely there is a difficulty here. In what sense are we to take the words, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Are we to take them as referring to the eternal generation of the Son? Are we to take them as referring to the Son apart from or separated from the idea of redemption? Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Son through eternal generation. 
Well, we do not pretend to understand what that means. There are mysteries within the Godhead that are unfathomable and will be eternally unfathomable to the highest created intellect. The relationship between the persons of the Trinity, for instance, the eternal generation of the Son, the Son who is the co-equal of the Father, who is of the same substance with him, equal in power and in glory. How are we, in the light of those scriptural facts, how are we to understand eternal generation? And yet, that is everywhere. The way in which the relationship between the Father and the Son are presented in Scripture. But the, the way the relationship is presented and the aspects of that relationship are always set forth under this form, the generation, the eternal generation of the Son by the Father. And then there is the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. There are what we call personal properties belonging to each person in the Godhead. The personal property of the Father is to beget the Son to eternal generation. The personal property of the Son is to be begotten of the Father. The personal property of the Holy Ghost is, is to proceed from the Father and the Son. That is how the relationship is set forth in Scripture. But what it actually means. The profundity, the depth of the truth lies outside the scope of our vision, lies beyond our measuring lines. The word, my son, this day have I begotten thee. What day is this? What day is this? This day have I begotten thee. Well, we take it that these words remove or move the thought out of the sphere of eternal generation. There never was a time when Christ was not. There never was a day 
when he came into being. This eternity, you see, was to the eternity of the Father. So when we read, this day have I begotten thee, we take it that there is reference made to a particular point or period of time. And we take it first as referring to his Incarnation. When he is begotten of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he is begotten as a man. He takes unto himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Why? In order to be a priest. For every priest is taken from among men. He is not taken from among the angels. Every priest must be taken from among men. And he is ordained for men, or appointed for men, in things pertaining to God. In taking our nature, he has been equipped for the work of the priesthood. For every priest must have something to offer. And offering in priesthood means the offering of life. He takes a life that he can and will lay down. This is part of his equipment for the office or the honor of the priesthood. From there, he goes on, and we can easily imagine the words being addressed to him again when the, when the word or the part of the priestly work that belongs to his humiliation, when it is accomplished, we can easily conceive of the words being applied to him at the resurrection. When he is addressed as the high priest, who is taken back from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Thou art my son. And the sonship, having special reference to the priesthood, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is what the Apostle says before the readers of his epistle. The relationship, at, this, at least at this, in this particular passage, the relationship between the Sonship of Christ and the priesthood of Christ. And that is precisely the order he follows in the whole epistle. 
He goes out to prove that Christ is a greater priest than Abraham. That he is unspeakably greater in his own person. That he has offered a better sacrifice. That he ratified a covenant established upon better promises. He goes out to show the superiority of Christ's priesthood over that of Aaron. But how does he do it? First of all, by bringing into the clearest prominence the sonship of Christ. Why is he a greater priest than Aaron? Why has he a more excellent priesthood? Because first, he is the Son of God. And as such, in personal dignity, in personal glory, he not only surpasses Aaron, but he's unspeakably superior to the angels. To which of the angels has he said at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It is the dignity, the glory, the eternal, unchanging glory of his person, which he emphasizes first of all in order to demonstrate the superiority, the absolute superiority of his priesthood over every other priesthood. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the context then in which the words of our text appear. And we shall just mention one or two things about the words themselves. <clears throat> Thou art a priest. There is honor expressed in these words. He is honored. Yes. But there is death expressed in them too. He is honored in that he is called a priest, a high priest. But he is called a high priest, called to the priesthood in order to offer. And what is he to offer? Himself. It is by the sacrifice of himself that he is to make perfect 
فار ایور دوست دار
It was to be a curse death. For sacrifice and the curse of God always lie side by side. In that it was to be a sacrificial death, we repeat, it was to be a cursed death. To this we say he is called, when he is honored by the Father to be a priest, a cursed death. Even the cursed death of the cross. He is made a curse. Christ saved us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse upon us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hung on a tree. Called of God to be a priest. The word a priest. But the word a priest forever. This is unlike the order of Aaron. The order of Aaron's priesthood. For of them many were priests. Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They died. The priest died. One generation of priests succeeded another. But here, the call to the priesthood is to one who has power over, own, over his own life. Power to lay down, yes. But power to take it again. He is called to a priesthood where none may or can minister but himself. He offered once himself unto God, but now he liveth in the power of an endless life. He cannot have a successor because he cannot die. He continues to minister as a priest, for he is a priest forever, not for a time after the order of Melchizedek. As Melchizedek appears on the page of Scripture, without any account of father or mother, without any account of his birth or his death, he appears as a priest. His antecedents are not known. We don't know who he was. The only thing we know about him is that he was king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He was also king of righteousness, because that is the meaning of his name, Melchizedek. He was king of righteousness and king of peace. 
without father or mother, without beginning of life or end of days. Not, of course, that he was absolutely, absolutely like that. Not that he didn't have a father or a mother, that he didn't have beginning of life or end of days. But what the apostle is referring to is that there's no account of him. In the records of priesthood, there is no account of the antecedents of Melchizedek. Now, to be a priest in Israel, one had to trace one's genealogy very carefully. No one could be a priest but one who was of the sons of Aaron. So one had to trace his pedigree to find his genealogy, to trace his birth to the tribe of Levite, else he couldn't be a priest by divine appointment. But when we come to Melchizedek, he is traced to none. He does not have his priesthood in a natural line of that sort. He appears without father or mother. We don't know who he was. He appears without beginning of days or end of life. There's no record of his birth and there's no record of his death. As he appears in scripture, he appears as a full-fledged priest. We know not where he came from, and we know not where he went. That's the order to which he belonged. And there is none of that order but himself. No. That was but to shadow forth what was to come. Now he said Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't trace his priesthood to Levi. For obviously, Christ was of the line of Judah, of which tribe Moses said nothing concerning priesthood. Christ could not lay claim to the priesthood along the natural line. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So in this he is like Melchizedek. He has no father or mother that had anything to do with the priesthood. He was debarred from the priesthood in that way. In that natural, by that natural succession. But his priesthood is not of that line. His priesthood is of the line or of the order of Melchizedek. He is unique. He has no predecessor. And certainly he can have no successor. He is after the order of Melchizedek. Called after that order, not after the order of Levi, not after the order of Aaron. He is of an entirely different order, even the order of Melchizedek. And now the apostle goes on to argue, and argue cogently and conclusively, that Melchizedek was a greater man 
even than Abraham. But Melchizedek was a greater man as a man than Levi. That Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And that in Abraham, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And without controversy, the less is blessed of the greater. That is, Melchizedek was a greater man than Abraham, considered as the priest of the Most High God. And if Melchizedek was, how much more is the Son of God the only begotten son. How much more is he above and beyond the tribe, the priesthood of Aaron? How much more? And I